0: This podcast was brought to you by our supreme Boilers of Leather. D. Elton Dane, the new sword of the morning, Morgan and Kate Ketchka. If you want to find out how to become a Supreme Boiler of Leather, or if you want access to all the cool bonus materials we offer, head over to patreon.com slash boiled leather audio hour.
1: Back on the road, the septon said, we would do well to keep a watch tonight, my friends. The villagers say they've seen three broken men skulking around the dunes, west of the old watchtower. Only three, Sir Hyle, sm- Sir Hyle smiled. Three is honey to our swords, wedge. They're not like to trouble armored men. Unless they're starving, the septon said. There's food in these marshes, but only for those with the eyes to find it. These men are strangers here, survivors from some battle. If they should accost us, sir, I beg you, leave them to me. What will you do with them? Feed them. Ask them to confess their sins so that I might forgive them. Invite them to come with us to the quiet isle. That's as good as inviting them to slit our throats as we sleep, Isle Hunt replied. Lord Randall has better ways to deal with broken men. Steel and hemp and rope. Sir, my lady, said Podrick, is a broken man an outlaw? More or less, Brienne answered. Captain Maribal disagreed, more or less than more. There are many sorts of outlaws, just as there are many sorts of birds. A sandpiper and a sea eagle both have wings, but they are not the same. The singers love to sing of good men, forced to go outside the law to fight some wicked lord, but most outlaws are more like this ravening hound than they are the lightning lord. They are evil men, driven by greed, soured by malice, despising the gods and caring only for themselves, Broken men are more deserving of our pity, though they may be just as dangerous. Almost all are common-born simple folk who had never been more than a mile from the house where they were born until the day some lord came round to take them off to war. Poorly shod and poorly clad, they march away beneath his banners, oft-times with no better arms than a sickle or a sharpened hoe, or a maul they made themselves by lashing a stone to a stick with strips of hide. Brothers march with brothers, sons with fathers, friends with friends. They've heard the songs and stories, and they go off with eager hearts, dreaming of the wonders they will see, of the wealth and glory they will win. War seems a fine adventure, the greatest most of them will ever know. Then they get a taste of battle. For some, that one taste is enough to break them. Others go on for years, until they lose count of all the battles they have fought in. But even a man who has survived a hundred fights can break in his hundred and first. Brothers watch their brothers die. Fathers lose their sons. Friends see their friends try to hold their entrails in after they've been gutted by an axe. They see the lord who led them there cut down. Some other lord shouts that they are his now. They take a wound, and when that's still half healed, they take another. There's never enough to eat. Their shoes fall to pieces from the marching. Their clothes are torn and rotting. And half of them are shitting in their breeches from drinking bad water. If they want new boots, or a warmer cloak, or maybe a rusted iron half half helm, they need to take them from a corpse. Before long, they are stealing from the living, too, from the small folk, whose lands they're fighting in, men very like the men they used to be. They slaughter their sheep and steal their chickens. And from there, it's just a short step to carrying off their daughters, too. And one day, they look around and realize that all their friends and kin are gone they are fighting beside strangers beneath a banner that they hardly recognize. They don't know where they are or how to get back home. The lord they're fighting for does not know their names. Yet here he comes, shouting for them to form up, to make a line with their spears and scythes and sharpened hoes, to stand their ground. And the knights come down on them, faceless men clad all in steel. The iron thunder of their charge seems to fill the world. And the man breaks. He turns and runs, or crawls off afterward over the corpses of the slain, or steals away in the black of night, and he finds some place to hide. All thought of home is gone by then. Kings and lords and gods mean less to him than a haunch of spoiled meat that will let him live another day, or a skin of bad wine that might drown his fear for a few hours. The broken man lives from day to day, from meal to meal, more beast than man. Lady Brienne is not wrong. In times like these, the traveler must beware of broken men, and fear them. But he should pity them as well. When Maribald was finished, a profound silence fell upon their little band. Brienne could hear the wind rustling through a clump of pussy willows, and farther off, the faint cry of a loon. She could hear Dog panting softly as he loped along beside the septum and his donkey, tongue lolling from his mouth. The quiet stretched and stretched until finally she said, How old were you when they marched you off to war? Why, no older than your boy, Maribald replied. Too young for such, in truth. My brothers were all going, and I would not be left behind. Willem said I could be his squire, but there was no knight, only a pot-boy armed with a kitchen knife he'd stolen from the inn. He died upon the stepstones and never struck a blow. It was fever did for him and for my brother robin owen died from a mace that split his head apart and his friend john pox was hanged for rape the war of the nine penny kings asked hyle hunt so they called it though i never saw a king nor earned a penny it was a war though that it was and that is in Maribald's monologue from A Feast for Crows by George R. Martin. The subject of today's episode of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour, brought to you as usual by your host, me, Sean T. Collins, freelance TV critic for Here, There, and Everywhere, and my
0: illustrious co-host, Stefan Sasse. Thank you for the reading. It was a blast as always. You should do a complete audiobook. It will sell. Unfortunately, it would also be getting you sued for copyright infringement, I guess. <laughs> for a moment. For a sweet moment there you would make million
1: yeah yeah i feel like they've got the the audiobook market covered already for uh, for a song of ice and fire sad to say but they're going to need a new narrator so maybe i'm the guy
0: Yeah, who knows? Who knows? You should turn in your papers and give an application. But uh, let's (laughs) let's get serious. This is another entry in our series about the best moments, the greatest hits of The Song of Ice and Fire. And you might have already wondered when we would go to this. And now is the time, baby. We need to talk about Septon Mirabold's monologue. And way back when, let me just start the time machine there for a little bit. Ten years ago, more or less. You wrote on the then active Tumblr of the boiled leather, uh, all leather must be boiled. You said, there are no words to describe how much this passage means to me. And I'm challenging you now to find some words. (laughs) Uh, Because this is a wordy medium after all. So, um, I would be interested, now with 11 years distance uh, to writing this post, do you have the words to describe what this passage means to you, or can you at least try Sure, I can try.
1: I'll give it a shot. Um, so the most obvious thing is, if you listen to me or read anything that I've read about the, in these books or the shows that have been based on them for years and years now, you know, I an anti-war message, I feel, is really at the heart of the whole thing. Now, I know that Martin has said, you know, war is glorious and exciting. And I think you can think that and still be, at times anyway. He's, he's never said it's always like that, just at times. And I think he's not wrong i mean we we have certainly enough testimony from soldiers over the years to know that uh, you know many people who survive war found it exciting or fulfilling or you know a, a, a great part of their lives um so that's fine and you know i think that the message delivered in this monologue is strengthened by that content in the books because let me put it this way. I, on my right arm, I have tattooed the words beneath the gold, the bitter steel, you know, it's the golden company's motto. And, um, it means a lot of things, you know, it's not just about, uh, the fact that they were hiding bitter steel or founded by bitter steel, obviously. Uh, the point is that, you know, or at least I've always taken it to be that beneath the, the, the glory and the banners and the gold and the jewels and the silver and, the, and, and the, all the finery and the frippery and all these things that we that are uh make Westerosi society at least high society so glorious or you know the the sort of image of war you know these knights and their gleaming armor and their awesome cool helms and their all the banners and all this shit um beneath that is 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 the bitter steel it's its weaponry it's swords it's blood it's death and No part of Song of Ice and Fire delivers this message more clearly than A Feast for Crows, which has always been my favorite book in the series since I read it, because I really love the way that, especially the storyline from which this monologue is taken, Brienne's storyline, where she makes this long, dreary slog through the war ravaged riverlands. Um, you know, Martin's really rubbing your face in what the War of the Five Kings has actually done to this place. And this is the passage where he makes that point more clearly than anywhere else. And so beyond the the message that um war is basically like a murder machine that you feed people into as fuel and they come out um pulped. Uh beyond that, I really have always loved the way that this passage is constructed because it starts out as What you think is going to be just sort of basic exposition about the concept of broken men, you know, you don't, it's not a term that you really hear a whole lot, uh, at least in this, in the context of warfare, outside of this book, you know, it might as well be boiled leather, which is another phrase that I had never heard in my life until I read it a million times in these books, right? Um so you know you need a little bit of explanation as to what a broken what a broken man is and what differentiates them from your usual outlaws or bandits or whatever and so that's kind of what you're getting from Maribald. and you you go along with it and you read and you read and you 're like, okay, okay, that's interesting and then there's these line breaks the way that Martin writes it you know then they then they get a taste of battle is all by itself um and the man breaks is all by itself, and those serve each one serves as sort of um a a the doorway into the next section of the monologue, which takes you a little bit deeper. So you get a basic description of outlaws, and then you get a basic description of where broken men originate, which is from the, the small folk, uh, the common born. And it tells you a little bit about you know why they would join up And and go to war, you know, because it's exciting compared to the lives that they've led up until that point, which have been, you know, dull and provincial. And then they get a taste of battle, and so then it gets into the second section where it talks about, you know, what it actually is like to go to war as a as a commoner, and how you lose the people that you went to war with, which is the camaraderie of which is part of the reason you went in the first place. You start losing track of who you're even fighting for. First, you were fighting for a lord who, who, who. you barely knew anyway and now you're perhaps fighting for a lord who you don't know at all maybe have never even heard of before but you're still out there you're still fighting you're you're falling to pieces you're sick you're tired your clothes are rags um you're starting to justify behavior that you probably would not have justified when you were just you know working the farm or or when you were a smith or whatever the case, you know, you're stealing, maybe you're raping, uh, maybe you're just kind of committing wanton destru- acts of destruction. And then you get that final line break um, that, you know, where it's all by itself and the man breaks. And then it describes, you know, what the actual life of a broken man is like, like and how it's like, um, you know, it's, it's a daily struggle for survival. And you know, as he said, you're more beast than man. And and you should pity these people. And it's at that point that I think you as the reader realize like he you know, Sampton Maribald is profoundly moved by the struggle of these people. And and these are people that he cares about. And that's very in character for Maribald. And I don't think that I realized what was really going on here. Until you get to that part where it says the quiet stretched and stretched until she finally said, how old were you when they marched you off to war? And then the light bulb goes off and you're like, oh, and there's no pause. There's nothing to indicate that he pauses in his response. Like he, like once, he's, once he is identified as a former broken man, Maribald being Maribald, um, he has no desire to hide anything about who he is and what he was and all that kind of stuff. So he goes right into um the you know the final story which is how how he joined up and when he joined up and with whom he joined up and what happened to all of them and they all died horribly except for him. And then you get to that last line uh you know the war of the nine penny kings asked Heil hunt. So they called it though I never saw a king nor earned a penny. It was a war though. That it was. And that like, ooh, we. Um, the, the point there, I think, so specifically, is you have this war called the War of the Ninepenny Kings, which is kind of a funny, joking name for a war because it's a funny joking name for these sort of bandit kings that rose up in Essos and under, um, you know, the the last Blackfyre guy um, tried to mount, um, an abortive conquest of the seven kingdoms. But Maribald strips that all away. He strips out the name, he strips out the humor, he strips out the, the name, which is um, a combination of money and royalty, neither of which mean a thing to him at this point. And just, he just gets it down to, to The bare bones of it which is that it was a war and in war people die a lot for no reason over and over and so it's not just the messages you know in conclusion it's not just the message which i think is vital and really central to the books it's the the way that the passage is constructed the way it leads you through from one section to the next kind of expanding your understanding not just of the concept being described but of the person doing the description until you finally get to the end and and all the uh, illusion is swept away both about Maribald and about this war in particular and war in general uh just a marvelously constructed uh, section you know it's my favorite part of, it's my favorite part of the series
0: yeah yeah totally understandable It is one of the many things I missed during my first read of it. Uh, I've talked about this a lot of times on the podcast, but I'm a pretty bad first time reader. So I need second, third reads, and I need the uh, communication within the community. And I think it was on your Tumblr uh, that I first read about the profoundness of this one section here, about the importance of it. And it shaped my understanding, not only of the series and its message, but also of A Feast for Crows specifically as a book and of Brienne's character arc. Because I think I'm not alone with many other people who, at least on the first read of A Feast for Crows, were kind of bummed out by Prien's arc because it seems to go nowhere. We know from the very beginning where Sansa Stark is and where Arya Stark is, in that she cannot find either of them, where she's going. They are not on Cracklaw Point. Uh, they are not uh, with the Rossbees. Uh, they are not in the Riverlands, uh, and so on and so forth. So her whole quest... From the beginning is absolutely futile and we know it for sure we, we have an absolute certainty it's not the futility of the quest that brienne herself often feels because it seems so uh, impossible to find a single person in war-torn vesteros but it is also on on the face of it uh, an impossibility so where is this going and this scene shows you where it is going uh, and she is, I guess, together with the Ironborn plot, the most important uh, viewpoint character in A Feast for Crows um, that determines why the book is called the way it's called. It's about the aftereffects of war. It is what happens after and aside from, uh, from the glory of battle, which is there. I mean, we have to give Martin that and he can write it. Uh, the glory of battle, he can write as well as the uh, as the horror of it, and the duality of it, the ambivalence, is what what makes this series so great, uh, what keeps it from going into grimdark uh, or anything. There's always this broken romanticism about it, and you can hear it even in the speech of Septon Maribald. You know, there once was a reason why you went on there. This is not nihilism, uh, more or less. Uh, there. And in, as you said, it was just a camaraderie at the beginning and uh, the sense of adventure and all of that, and that gets stripped away, much like it does for Quentin uh, in A Dance with Dragons when he uh, goes into battle at Estabore. That, that has functionally um, the same thing, only there we can see it from, from a first-person perspective uh, or at least a first-person recollection. But here, uh, this is so important thematically um, as you said, yeah, it's one one of the, if not the most important sequence in the whole of A Song of Ice and Fire, and you can quote it completely on its own. Yeah, um, it it can stand by itself. Uh, you can put it in the context of practically any war, and look at uh, look at the human cost from this angle, more or less. And it says such profound things about how humans function how society functions how war functions that's just it speaks to me every time i read it every time i listen to it um i mean by now i can quote half of it i guess but it is still a very very touching sequence and once again i'm using the word but it is profound uh, in what it is saying it is not just war is bad huh (laughs) which, yeah, sure. Um, And that message gets you only so far, just as Netflix and All Quiet on the Western Front. I mean, you can produce two and a half hours of War is Bad, huh? Uh, But it doesn't amount to much. And this year, it amounts to a lot. Uh, And there is so much of it in there. And there is also character work involved. Uh, You already uh, singled out the reaction and uh, Brienne's sensibility uh, in immediately sussing out that he is more or less talking about himself, um, which is not something that I would pick on. But as you said, it's a light bulb moment. You just, it just makes sense. And if you can quiet up a guy like Heil Hunt with your story, then then you have struck narrative gold right there as uh, as this preacher, as this wandering, wandering priest that we have here. And he has something to say about the world uh, and and how it works, and I think once again it is uh, it is a profound sequence, and it did a lot to shape my understanding of the series and of the topics of what it was really about. I will leave it at there for now. I'm glad you brought up Brienne because uh, I think you know there's there's so much
1: I want to say about this passage. Um, and I'll get back to uh, a bunch of it, but with Brienne in particular, you're right that it is a character building moment, and I think that that can easily get lost because the, the passage and the message and the writing is so impressive. But it it is Brienne who figures out that Maribald is talking talking about himself, and why is it Brienne and not Sir Heil Hunt, and not Podrick? Well, Podrick is young, and Heil Hunt is um, an asshole who only gives a shit about himself. Brienne is a loser. She's a loser in this world. And she recognizes and empathizes with other losers, and she can suss them out. It's why she is able to draw out the humanity in Jamie, who feels himself to be a loser despite all appearances to the contrary, except for the fact that he gets his hand cut off, which is sort of what brings those feelings, I think, closer to the surface. Because now his body reflects a little bit how he feels about himself. Uh, inside, as much as he has adapted this whole, um, you know, attitude of swagger to cover up um, his feelings of guilt and shame over the things that he's done, and so you know, Brienne, of course, is the person who who who, who figures it out, and Meribald sees in Brienne something of a kindred spirit, and and he he's not ashamed of who he is anymore. He's willing to admit what happened to him and what he did, you know, and, th- and that might be the, that might have been the case had it only been Sir Heil there with him, but Brienne certainly makes it easier. And I think that's a wonderful character building moment for both of them. And I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the other thing that I would say here is that there's a tremendous uh, b- unity between the form of this passage and the function of this passage. Like, I feel like you can feel it getting quieter as it goes now you know the 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 only reference to that that you really get is is the bit where um what's it say Silence fell upon their a profound silence fell upon their little band, you know the wind rustling all this kind of stuff but I think you can you know. Up top, there's much more interplay between the three of them. You know, Maribald talks, Heil talks, Maribald talks, Heil talks, Maribald talks Heil, talks, Heil talks, Podrick talks, Brienne talks, and then it's Maribald the whole way. And you can feel as he talks the other characters quieting down, you know, because they're not interjecting. So you, you know that they're being quiet. But there's something about the way that the passage is written and the sort of momentum of the prose that makes it, you you can feel it getting more intimate, more intense. Yeah, like a hush falls over the crowd, so to speak, until it's completely silent. Uh, And then at the end, he gives that last bit where he talks about like, You know, his brother's dying, and another brother getting killed, and then a friend who was a rapist. And then finally you get to that part, you know, it was a war, though, that it was. And I I just, I can hear the sounds of the whole situation, the the birds, and the, the footsteps, and the dog breathing, and... The way that everyone is sort of retreating into themselves and thinking about what he's saying, and as you said, shutting up Sir Hyle Hunt, which is no, which is no mean feat. And you know, the only th- the only thing that he interjects at the end of all this, he doesn't correct Maribald, he doesn't argue with Maribald, he doesn't try and be like, well, I'm broken, man. Actually, fuck him. Like he just he identifies the war that Maribald was talking about, and that's it. Um. They've all been sort of uh, cowed almost by this story, and you know by now, I think all of them have probably seen enough to let them know that 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 the battle is is a pretty ugly thing uh but they're still young, uh even Heil hunt compared to maribald and this voice from this is almost like the this is almost like a haunting, like a ghost warning them of the fate that awaits them. And you you can feel the solemnity of it grow throughout the passage until, you know, it. it, it the, the rest of the party can barely speak at all. Uh, and that's all from the way Martin writes it. Um, it's not spelled out necessarily in the actual content of the text. It is the the pacing of it and the way that it uh, advances from sort of section to section like I was talking before. So it's, it's not merely the message, um, you know, like a lot of the greatest hits that we've been going over and that we will continue to go over from The Song of Ice and Fire, what, what what makes them greatest hits is, is, is a blend of form and function. It is the content of what's being said or what's being described. And it is um, Martin's prose at its strongest. I think that was true of, for example, the, the, the tower of joy, um, just to name one off the top of my head. And I I think it's absolutely true for here too.
0: Yeah. I think we need to talk a little bit more about the prose because it, it just fulfills so many functions. Like you said, you can almost feel the hush that falls over the scene. And I cannot point out as to why this is uh, in, uh, in what he says. You know, um, <clears throat> it is just the rhythm uh, of, uh, of that whole story. And I think uh, a lot of it is the, uh, the paragraph breaks. Uh, that help uh, that help here. So let me just uh, get out my literature teacher head uh, for the moment. This is something that students always hate. You know, when you go into the nitty gritty of getting uh, getting style uh, analysis, and oh, why is here a period and not a comma, uh, and and things like that, and they're always like, ah, oh, this is interpreting too much. But you can always you need you need to always analyze this stuff functionally. You need to look uh, at why is it put there. And I'm pretty certain that Martin spent quite some time uh, on wondering where the paragraph breaks are uh, in this very monologue. Uh, You know, shifting, uh, shifting things together. Because when you just look at it on the page, you can see the 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 pauses without him ever saying like Septon Maribold paused uh, or something like that. Uh, And you do not need to actually write that everyone is listening attentively. It just happens automatically. And it happens automatically because you, the reader, are doing the same thing. We are so much in the headspace of the audience of Septon Maribold um, in this text because of how the prose works. And, I mean, Septim Marybould is one very, very wordy motherfucker, basically. He he has a way with with words. He's very, um, how do you say, eloquent uh, is the word I'm searching for. Um, So um, he manages to get a specific rhythm uh, into his language that reminds me a lot of the likes of Deadwood or The Wire, uh, you know, maybe The Sopranos. I'm not quite sure, uh, but dialogue um, here uh, in these series, for example, all uh, for example, also has always a specific rhythm to it, no matter the content. I'm just rewatching The Wire. That's because it's uh, fresh in my mind. Uh, but th- they are talking about drugs, but their dialogue has has rhythm and cadence uh, and all of that. You know, uh, you you could analyze that stuff uh, in a literary class, even when they're just talking about G packs and uh, and that stuff. And it is the same here. It is not just what Septon Maribel said uh, says, uh, but how he says it. And no better arms than a sickle or a sharpened hoe or a mole They made themselves by lashing a stone to a stick with strips of hide. It it just has this. Um, I'm always telling my students uh, if you bring examples, do it in threes. Uh, and of course, th- this is one of the um, one of the things we have here: or poorly shot and poorly clad. The parallelism, uh, stuff like this. It is just written really, really well. Brothers march with brothers, sons with fathers, friends with friends. Uh, again, parallelism and threes. It all works so well. Uh, and it draws you in this story. It, it, it gets um, a magnetic uh, effect on you uh, and it pulls you in. Uh, and gives you gives you all of it. And uh, and he is spinning this narrative. So they've heard the songs and stories. So they go off with eager hearts, dreaming of the wonders they will see, of wealth and glory they will win. War seems a fine adventure, the gra- greatest most of them will ever know. And you can just see the people, you know, you're feeling it too, uh, the great adventure. But already, um, Septon Maribold is... Uh, is sowing the seeds for what comes next, because it is, uh, if you are careful, and once again, that's literally uh, literary analysis for you, um, they heard songs and stories. They dream of wonders. Uh, war seems like a fine adventure. You know, you already get a little bit primed that something is not quite right, that this image, that uh, that the, uh, the eagerness that you are now also feeling, you know, the trumpeting uh, and the banners and all that stuff, Something isn't right about it and uh, and it will get destroyed. And then you get this whole paragraph break. And there is this one single sentence. And even before you read it, it just jumps out at you and you know that something important is coming now. Then they get a taste of battle. And then we get another paragraph break. And you just know, you, you just feel the sentence hanging in the air with dripping with meaning. And, uh, and, uh, and it breathes. Because your eyes need to wander down one line at least. And that is more time than your eyes and your, uh, and your brain would need to normally read a sentence. So when, when he goes on with, uh, for some, um, the, that one taste is enough to break them, others go on for years, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you have an automatic pause in that just because of the line break. And this is a kind of construction and a way with words That is just uh, that is just incredible. And then the um, the whole monologue goes on. Uh, we get this one thing uh, where he gives us the horror of it and it contrasts so nicely with the songs and stories, the eager hearts and dreaming of wonders. And now what do they get? Brother, brothers watch their brothers die. Uh, fathers lose their sons. Friends see their friends trying to hold their entrails in after they've been gutted by an axe. It's the same structure once again. The brothers and the brothers, the fathers and the sons and the friends and the friends um, th- that we had marching off to war and now they're all dying. Um, this is an enumeration, uh, and it works just fine. And we get another act break, uh, another paragraph break, just so it can, just so that you can really feel it, that you see this person on the ground trying to keep their entrails in. Uh, I mean, you, I have the immediate image of Saving Private Ryan. You know, when they stormed the beaches of Normandy, just someone lying on uh, lying on the ground crying for their mother, trying to hold their entrails. It's just such a ghastly image. And it contrasts so great with uh, the wonders and the songs and the stories. And then we get this next iteration of it, because right now you are still fighting the same cause that you fought before. But now it gets even worse with another line break, you know, because the Lord is cut down. Some other Lord shouts that they are his now, which... Does the feudal system even work like that? It doesn't matter because they can make it work like that. Uh, you know, uh, this is just the reality. When people are always talking uh, about uh, levies going uh, are being sworn to a specific lord and that they only fight for him and yada yada, yeah, that's the theory. Uh, but in uh, in practice, there is this guy in armor on a horse uh, with with great gear, and he swings his sword and he says, "Now you belong to me and go on." And then they have a wound, uh, which is bad enough. Uh, But what what gets me about the next part is when it's still half healed, they take another. You know, this half sentence does so much because if I have a half healed wound, I am not whole. I am. This is not regenerating hit points. This is you get wounded and you are carrying that wound for quite some time until the next battle at least. And then it's only half healed. And then you get wounded again. And on top of it, there is never enough to eat. The shoes fall to pieces from the marching. The clothes are torn and rotting, and half of them are shitting in their breeches from drinking bad water. And we get uh, the, uh, this horrific image, and the way how he describes it, it all goes uh, towards this um, towards this climax that we are going here. This is shit. This is hell. Uh, you know, we're always saying war is hell. Uh, th- this is how it really looks. Uh, this is the uh, the bad thing about it. And then we get, of course, another line break, a new paragraph. So it can sit there for itself. That you have to take it in as this one chunk of meaning before the next part of meaning starts. And now we go on to the warm boots and the warmer cloak or a roasted iron half him, And they need to take that from a corpse. And these are just so small creature comforts. Uh, that he's talking about here, uh, the boots and the warmer cloak, uh, one would assume that you get this stuff uh, when when you uh, join up to the military, but no, sir, uh, you do not. Uh, you go in with whatever you are carrying on your body, and when that's gone, you have to uh, you have to plunder. Um, and you'd have to take it from a corpse, which is bad enough, and then if you do that, and before long, they're stealing from the living too, from the small folk whose lands they're fighting, in. men very like the men they used to be. Once again, this is so great, uh, it is so efficient in what he's trying to tell. Uh, if I were trying uh, just to recreate the uh, what is in these sentences, I would write like at least one and a half times the words, uh, and uh, and I would still come up short most likely. This they used to be. It just does so much work uh, in the context of this. And I, I I think I will go on with this stuff, but uh, before I want to take a breather and let you get a, a few words in, if you like.
1: No, I just think it's really astute that it it does, um, you know, as you've been detailing, the way that it puts us in the same position as the people listening to him and, um, you know, as the meaning of the passage unfurls, we're getting the same education that they are and picking up on things the way they are because Maribald is such an effective storyteller, which makes sense because it's his only weapon. In moving about the world, the only way he can survive is by convincing people not to kill him, right? Like if he runs into people like that. So of course he's got the gift of gab. Of course he's got a way with words. Of course he can draw people in the way he draws them in and the way he draws us in, into this story. And of course, as you say, he's really efficient in the way he tells the story. Like I love that you highlighted how um, the people that the broken men or the soon to be broken men are robbing are people just like the people they used to be? You only need to describe that kind of person once, and you get two for the price of one. And suddenly you're flipping it, and you're showing, like, these folks who are just nice, normal people, they're now robbing and raping nice, normal people. What What's going on here? Um, it's just such effective writing. It really is. And such effective, you know, from the from within the world of the story, such effective public speaking by Maribald.
0: totally uh i mean i don't i don't even know what to uh what to respond to this specifically it's just it's just incredible i want to hear this man preach i would like to hear what he tells the small folk um but unfortunately we never really get uh get um get a sermon uh, that he does uh but but he can do this uh, and he has a way to to get to the to the bottom mm-hmm. So let me just uh, let me just continue uh, looking at uh, at the text itself, uh, where he describes the moral descent that goes on with the physical descent that he has uh, chronicled up until now, because just being cold and miserable doesn't make you a broken man. What also makes you a broken man is to lose all moral mooring. Uh, that you have in the world uh, and you are slaughtering the sheep and she, uh, steal their chickens from there it's just a short step to carrying off their daughters in one way you look around and you realize all oh, friends and kin or gun, you fight beside strangers beneath a banner you hardly recognize and this there is an existential despair to this because you just cannot make sense of any of it you know um, you are you are stranded, you cannot go back, you cannot go forward. there is no way forward out of this mess because the war is endless at this point. and on the other hand, um, you cannot go back either uh, because you are still in war, you're still conscripted, you do not know anyone, you don't know where you are. Um, you are uh, under banners so you cannot leave under threat of death, etc uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And all of this uh, comes together. Uh, and and you have and none of your experience will save you. This is also a very important point. I want to go back a little bit later on, uh, where you have this. Um, uh, they are once again shouting for them to form up, make a line with their spears and stand their ground. Knights come down, faceless men clad in steel. The iron thunder of their charge seems to fill the world. And this is the 100th battle maybe uh, that this man uh, lives. And then we get another line break, and the man breaks. Like this is the same uh, with the then they got a taste of battle and it structures the whole monologue. Now he breaks. And now we will learn about what this means. But by now we understand why people break and that it is not a question of courage, that it is not a question of training either. Uh, a knight can also break just ask Sandor Clegane and they will meet him like what in the same chapter or in the next I'm not quite certain uh, but they will meet him on the quiet aisle and he is a man who broke and he had plenty of training and plenty of experience and this does not protect you uh, anyone can break just uh, it is it is the nature of war to break people so that's that and then when the man has broken, we get yet another paragraph uh, in which we get told the horrors uh, of uh, of how, what this experience entails. Uh, he says, he turns and runs, he crawls off afterwards over the corpses of the slain, or he steals away in the black of night and he finds some place to hide. Or thought of hope home is gone by then, kings and lords and gods mean less to him than a haunch of spoiled meat that will live, uh, let him live another day, or a skin of bad wine that might drown his fear for a few hours. And this is one of the sequences I have once again to think of Sandor Clegane, because he is no stranger to bad wine, he usually forgoes to food, Uh, for some reason that man works on wine alone. but this is something uh that that really seems poignant uh to me and i don't think this is a pure happenstance given that they will meet uh send just a few hours down the road basically and uh, he tells us uh, the broken man is more beast than man lady brienne is not wrong uh we must be wary of broken men but we should also pity them and this is the lapsed catholic speaking i guess uh this is just so typical uh, of george ora R. martin to give us this on the one hand these guys are dangerous and on the uh, uh, and on the other hand we have this uh, moral thing about them we need to pity them they are pitiable they are uh, something of uh, of a byproduct of war Uh, they are they don't know what they're doing basically or they have no other choice they are victims of war as much as they are producing victims of war all the time, so this is how uh, how it ends. And now Martin uh, actually says it. When he was finished, a profound silence fell on the little band, and you could hear the wind rustling through a clump of pussy billows farther off the faint cry of a loon. She could hear dog panting softly as he looked alongside, and Septon and donkey uh, tongue lolling from his mouth. The quiet stretched and stretched until she finally said blah, blah, blah. Uh, and this, once again, Martin just can't do this shit, uh, you know, because this manages to um, with these descriptions of what they're hearing, uh, the wind through the pussy willows, the lapping of the tongue, uh, etc. Uh, this is all happening simultaneously, uh, but uh, since this is a written medium, uh, all of it is put in a sequence. So the actual moment takes you longer to read uh, than it would take in real time. This is basically a slow motion uh, scene adding uh to the whole effect uh, of this and then we get uh, the close uh thing where he confesses to being the broken man in the story and then we have uh Heil Hunt providing us with the historical context because uh, this wouldn't be George RR Martin if he wouldn't give us the history of it war of the nine penny kings so they called it though I never saw a king not earned a penny it was a war though that it was yeah, and I this is my last thought on this I think the whole idea of how war is framed here is profoundly uh, influenced by uh, by the experience of the Vietnam War. And I mean, uh, Martin was a conscientious objector. He didn't go into war. Uh, but if you watch movies like Apocalypse Now or Full Metal Jacket or Platoon, you always get this stuff about people breaking in war, uh, about these extremes uh, of the human condition uh, and stuff like that. And it is just done so incredibly well uh, in the sequence. And now I'm shutting up and giving it back to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty sophisticated exploration of some ways that uh, PTSD or shell shock or whatever you want to call it can take a person. Um, oh gosh, I was just going to say something and I completely forgot what it was. Ugh, hate when that happens. Um, the other thing I didn't remember what it was, uh, just the, the you know, that very brief itemization of like all his brothers and friends and what happened to them. It yeah. reminds me so much of just a little, almost, It's not a throwaway line, but it's just very brief in the introduction uh-huh. to *The Lord of the Rings where Tolkien says that by the end of world war one, all but one of his close friends were dead. And, um, I think about that all the time when I read those books. You, you, I don't think you can exaggerate the influence of the Great War on Tolkien and on the on on that story and on those books and how on how things play out for let's say Frodo Baggins, who is a broken man by the end of the books. Um, it, it, I don't know, maybe I'm just picking. Uh, you know, Martin is, is obviously a big fan of Tolkien, and 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 I, 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 even though, as we've discussed many times, in, in some ways his project is a revisionist project, he still has a great deal of respect for the Master, so to speak, and I think that probably one of the things that he responds to most strongly is that undercurrent of tragedy and horror and trauma in The Lord of the Rings that is derived from Tolkien's experiences in war and as a conscientious objector I feel like he probably really um you know he can't he can't share it or experience it uh, himself but I think it probably resonates with him very deeply and so I'm not surprised that it's in there and I I love how it comes out in this passage I think it's uh yeah, you know, I, I, to me, this passage is as key to understanding *A Song of Ice and Fire* as that little line in the introduction to *The Lord of the Rings* is to understanding *The Lord of the Rings*. Like, I, I feel like you need, like, this is this is a this is a key or this is a puzzle piece that you need to unlock the true meaning of the thing or to see the full picture of the thing. Just in this one little segment in this one storyline that most people disliked in a book that is everyone's least favorite except mine um and maybe other people's too i know it's other people's favorite too but i, I realize it's not a, a you know i'm not alone in this um then i think as time has gone on the reputation of feast for crows has grown and i think the prevalence of combined reading orders like the one that i came up with or a Feast of Dance, like has renewed people's appreciation for what's actually going on in the Feast for Crows, because when you run it parallel with a lot of the stuff that's going on in Dance for Dragons, Dance with Dragons, not only do you get a little more action and adventure and excitement from a Dance with Dragons than you get from a Feast for Crows. Um, when you put the two halves together. Uh, it it complements, you know, they complement one another. And I think um It's helped people see A Feast for Crows in a new light. And anyway, point being, and this may be my final point, I'm not sure, but that I'm pleased that this section of this storyline of this book has gotten all the attention that it's gotten from people over the years because it really deserves it. And I think um, it could get lost in the shuffle because of the way it's hidden inside um, the stuff that a lot of people just kind of want to race through to find out what's going on with Danny. Um, and so on and so
0: on. I don't think I have anything to add either. This is, as you said, a key to unlocking what this whole story is about. And it is no... Coincidence, I guess, that it left many people not quite as enamored as, let's say, the Red Wedding or stuff like that, because it comes after the flurry uh, of finales. That it is a Storm of Swords, and the Storm of Swords is just a, such a banger of a book. It has high moment after high moment, one uh, one close to the next, uh, and. A Feast for Crows doesn't have that. <laughs> and it meanders, um, and it is much more connected by theme uh, than by plot. Uh, in A Storm of Swords, I can usually tell uh, how each chapter is connected to the next, but in A Feast for Crows, I get the Ironborn, and then I get Brienne, and then I see Jamie walking around and uh, asking himself stuff, and, uh, and then I get Arya's oh, training montage, and uh, all of that doesn't add up to a coherent whole story wise plot wise but it is thematically connected and this is more difficult to read and it is less rewarding on the first time around but I would argue it is much more rewarding on the second third fourth fifth and so on and so forth time around and this is what makes this monologue best placed here Uh, It is a mission statement of this middle part of the book. You know, when we see Game of Thrones, The Clash of Kings and The Storm of Swords as kind of the first act of the story uh, and The Feast Dance as the second uh, act and then hopefully uh, The Winds of Winter and The Dream of Spring uh, as uh, the last, uh, the third act of the story, then Septon Maribald's monologue, I guess, would be the one scene that can best sum up uh, what this is about. Much like the Shadow on the Wall speech from Varys, seems like the best single scene uh, to sum up that first act uh, so to speak but i'm sure we'll get to that monologue another time so thank you very much uh, for doing this with me sean and thanks everyone for uh, listening to us thank all the patreons for supporting us you know the drill go to patreon yada 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 uh, all of it uh the same as always thank you and bye-bye until next time If you like this podcast, you can support us via PayPal at paypal.me slash boilleather or you go over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash boilleatheraudiohour. Patreon offers many subscription tiers, which give you early access to episodes, the possibility to weigh in on topic choices, bonus podcasts like the Boiled Leather Audio Moment or the Boiled Leather Audio Conversation, and of course, the possibility to be mentioned right in the beginning of every podcast. Hop over to patreon.com slash Boiled Leather Audio Hour or contribute over PayPal at paypal.me slash Boiled Leather.